The Apostle Paul spent about um, a year and a half in the city of Corinth, which is the city uh, to whom he wrote the letter that we are studying here tonight. It's the second longest period of time that the Apostle Paul spent in any of the cities that he planted churches in. The only place that he spent a longer time was the city of Ephesus. But after the, 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 the year and a half that the Apostle Paul spent in Corinth, raising up and establishing the church there, he, he left Corinth and he went back across the Aegean Sea, back onto the continent of Asia Minor. And he spent some time there. He went to Ephesus where he spent three years, the longest he spent at any of the churches. And while he was in Ephesus for that three-year period of time, he received word that things were not going too well uh, with the church that was in Corinth. There was all kinds of problems there in the church. They were fighting. They were competing. They were becoming factual or factioned, setting up denominations and setting up one pastor or leader above another. There was fornication and deep sin within the church. There was drunkenness taking place at the communion service. Their marriages were a mess. They were blowing their witness in society and in their families. And I mean, there was just all kinds of problems, even with their doctrine and the things that they were believing. And so Paul was much discouraged when he received news of the chaos that was going on in Corinth. And after receiving that message, something began to stir within his mind. There was a discontentment in his heart while he was there in Ephesus. Now, he decided that he would write to them a letter seeking to correct some of these issues. And that letter was 1 Corinthians, the letter that uh, precedes this one in the Bible, wherein he addresses all of those things. And then he sent it with one of his uh, fellow servants, fellow laborers, a man by the name of Titus, a name you've probably heard before, to bring the letter then to Corinth. But as soon as Titus disappeared from Paul's view, Paul immediately was filled with a sense of regret that he had decided to write and to send that letter. And I don't know if any of, of you can relate to that, wherein you know, you, there's something burdening your heart and you address it by way of a letter or leaving someone a text message or a voicemail and you press send. And then as soon as you do that, the regret hits you that maybe you shouldn't have said that. Or maybe you should have phrased things a little bit differently. Or maybe uh, you should have thought about it a little while longer before you acted. And that's what happened to Paul once he sent 1 Corinthians away. And so great became the burden in his heart about what that letter would do or the response that it would provoke that he left Ephesus in the middle of a great work that was taking place. He said from his own mouth that a great and effectual door was opened unto him, that there was great things happening there within the city, but he could no longer wait. He needed to know what was going on in Corinth. And so he left the city of Ephesus, and from there he traveled north to the area of Troas, which was the port city wherein you would cross over into Macedonia and then, and then move down into the region of Corinth. So he comes into Troas, and once he gets there, a door is open for him. Ministry begins to unfold, but he doesn't even want it. He says, I need to get to Corinth. And so he does something that the Apostle Paul never does, and he leaves, even though he has the potential to serve God there. And he crosses over the Aegean Sea, and he comes into the region of Macedonia. He lands in Philippi, which is where those ships would go. He had planted a church there. He spends a little bit of time in Philippi, and then in Thessalonica, and then in Berea, 
strengthening those churches. And it's during that time that Titus, coming now up, returning from Corinth, meets with Paul again and brings him word concerning the letter that had come. Now, the reason I give you all of that by way of review and background tonight is because that's what Paul is about to talk about now as he gets into the next section of this letter here in chapter 7, picking up in verse 2. So notice what Paul writes here as we pick up in the text. He says in verse 2, he says, Receive us, or open your heart to us, for we have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness or openness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you, my boasting of you towards others. For I am filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. And here's why. Paul says that he's joyful and here's why he's joyful. For when we were come into Macedonia, that is he crossed the Aegean Sea, came into that region where he would then move south towards Corinth. He says, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforts or encourages those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Titus now, who had carried the original letter, now meets up with Paul in the region of Macedonia, the northern part there of what would modern, be modern-day Greece. Titus comes and brings word to Paul, and then here's what the word was in verse 7. And he says, and not by his coming only, not just the fact that we saw Titus and we were glad to see an old friend, but rather by the consolation or the encouragement, the comfort, wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me so that I rejoiced the more. So what Paul is saying here is that when Titus came and he told me that you not only received all of the correction and instruction in the heaviness of the first letter that I'd written to you, but that you responded with a fervent desire to get things right and that you had a fervent mind towards me, that you were glad that you heard from me and you were glad to receive that letter from me, then that eased the burden that I had been carrying all the while, while I had been in Ephesus and then in all the time traveling to Macedonia. There was an encouragement that filled me with so much joy that it eclipsed the trouble and the sorrow and the tribulation that I had feeling all the way up until that time. Now, if you read it, you can almost pass over it. But the couple of verses that we just read, 5, 6, and 7, are some of the most vulnerable words that were ever spoken or uttered or recorded by the Apostle Paul in, in the entirety of his ministry. Now, if you've read much of the Bible or the New Testament, and you've seen the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, and you see the fervency with which he served the Lord, or if you read his writings as you read the New Testament letters, and you see the kind of man that he was, 
you can almost begin to think that he was so strong that he was just a machine. That he was a man with very little emotion for anything other than God and God's truth and the ministry that he had. And that, that he would just set his face like a flint and that nothing could get under this guy's skin. And you can almost get that idea and that impression about the Apostle Paul until you read these verses. And when you read these verses, you see in just a couple of sentences, he describes these emotions that were going through him when he would think about Corinth. Joy, but then trouble, fear, being downcast, but then being encouraged, and then rejoicing. And you see all of that, and what you see is you see this roller coaster of emotions that would take place within this man Paul. And you almost get the idea that if he were in the modern day, he would probably be on some kind of psychotropic medication to try to stabilize the way that he was feeling. But the Apostle Paul was very much a man that was subject to emotions and subject to highs and lows. And, and there's not one person in this world or in the body of Christ that is above that. Every single one of us has the, the propensity, no matter how strong we might be of a person, no matter how strong we might be in the Lord, of going through seasons where there's highs and lows, where there's pressures of life that get us down, and then there's things that happen that encourage us. And sometimes we don't even understand the emotions and the things that we're feeling ourselves. We're high and then we're low, and, and, and what am I, bipolar? What is going on inside my life? Let me tell you something. Every human being that lives on the face of the planet is bipolar. Did you know that? Bipolar means that you have the ability to experience the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And that's the way God made us. And in a fallen world, we're going to experience the lowest of lows at times, even though we're saved. But God, who comforts those that are downcast, always comes through in some way and lifts us out of it in his time or in his way. Another thing that amazes me about the Apostle Paul and what he was going through in this time is that he was actually concerned with how the people in the church in Corinth felt about him personally. Notice what he says there again at the end of verse 7. He says, um, he says, your earnest desire, your mourning and your fervent mind toward me. It mattered to the Apostle Paul what the Christians in Corinth thought of him personally. And sometimes, you know, that, that to me is a little bit of a, a comfort, you know, to realize that Paul cared about the people there. Maybe the people there didn't even think that Paul cared about them, but Paul cared about them. God, in his ways and in his wisdom, has chosen that those that serve him in this world be human, just like everybody else. Now, God could just very easily send an angel to do his work. He could uh, do his work without using any entity at all. He could just be speaking from behind the scenes and things could be happening and being orchestrated within our lives. But he doesn't do that. He uses people in his service. And one of the, 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 the pitfalls of that reality is that when a person is serving the Lord, a person like Paul or a person like, just like any, any one of us, is that we're subject to the same limitations that everyone else has. We all have an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that makes up our capacity and our ability to, to hold things or use any, any other type of uh, you know, container you want, a nine inch plate or a, a 
a one-pint cup or whatever it is. But every single one of us has the limitations of a single life. We can only fit so much in our mind. We can only fit so much in our heart. We can only give our attention to so much. We only have so much strength. And we have this much responsibility and we have this much capacity to spread all of that out. And when you lay that over the context of someone like the Apostle Paul, who was caring for how many churches and who is responsible for the salvation of how many souls and he had how many stories that he was responsible to remember and how many people that he was praying for, you got to wonder how in the world could a man or anyone survive that kind of a thing. And what can happen when that's the case is that people can, can almost get disillusioned with that person. They can put more on that person, more pressure on that person than is fair to, to be placed upon them uh, in light of the fact that they are limited in their capacity. Paul left Corinth. He hadn't been there for a couple of years. And the people there could have thought Paul could care less. But what they see now is that Paul couldn't care more. He cared exceedingly about the Christians in Corinth and about the state of the church there, insomuch that just finding out that they still liked him was to him a source of great, great encouragement. It encourages pastors and leaders and Christians when their ministry has an impact in people's lives anyway. And that anyway is in spite of anything else that might come. And when Paul realized that his ministry still had an impact in Corinth, it, it encouraged him in the midst of otherwise what would be great discouragement within his life. He was received personally. But not just personally, his message was also received to them, which was also a source of encouragement to Paul. Notice as we move on in the text. He says in verse 8, he says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. <laughs> For I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. So Paul acknowledges the fact that the letter that he had written them produced in them a feeling of sorrow. And he says, I'm not sorry that you felt that sorrow, though I was once that letter left my possession and I didn't know how it would be received. But now that I know that, that you were sorry, he says, I know it was just a season. And in verse nine, he says, and now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. That you would realize that the purpose of our writing the letter to you was not to damage you psychologically, but rather it was the physician's scalpel that was intended to surgically remove something that would ultimately harm you. And so it wasn't our intent to harm, but to heal. And here's how that works in verse 10. He says, for godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of or to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world works death. And so Paul says here that when you received the word of our epistle, what it produced in you was a sorrow, but that sorrow didn't lead to discouragement unto death, but rather that sorrow led to repentance and repentance led you back to life. 
It worked a good purpose within you. And he says um, in, in, um, in comparing sorrow of the world to the sorrow that God brings, he says worldly sorrow brings death, but godly sorrow brings repentance. Did you know that repentance is an important, even an essential part of the Christian life? You cannot be a Christian if you have not repented of your sin. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That every single person born into this world as a descendant of Adam is born with a sinful nature. We're born with it. And thus the reason why we sin as we develop into our childhood and then into our adult life is because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And that's a big difference. We're born with it. Every single one of us. And because there's nothing we could do to remove the sin nature from us, God in his perfect holiness and in his love sent his son into the world, not born in sin, who then lived a sinless life and as a representative of all humanity, purchased on the cross the forgiveness of sins. In that he himself never sinned, he had righteous and innocent blood. But in that he died upon the cross, he was absorbing in himself the payment and the punishment for sin. And thus the sins that he did not commit were punished upon him or laid upon him. And the righteousness that he earned is now made available to any who would receive it. It's offered as a free gift to any who would come. But it's conditioned upon faith that is believing that God did that for you but also on repentance. And that is that he calls us now to leave the life of sin and to forsake the following after our sinful nature and passions and to give our life to him in holiness and to turn our back upon sin. Now, the word of God and the light of scripture sheds light upon the sin of our heart. And the reason why God sheds light upon the sin of our heart is not that he would bring sorrow to us unto death, but rather he would bring sorrow unto repentance that we might find life. But if we're not willing to turn from our sins, then we never find that life. And if we're not willing to listen to the truth of God about our nature, then we never know about our sin to turn from it and to repent. There's a difference between being sorry for our sins after a worldly manner and being sorry for our sins after a godly manner. To be sorry for our sins after a worldly manner often means that we're sorry that we got caught or we're ashamed of the consequences that we're going to face because the sin has been now exposed and we're ashamed of it. That's worldly sorrow. God indicted the Old Testament nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 26. He said to them, he said it this way. He said, as a thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. And that's the sorrow of the world. It means they're not sorry that they were sinners before God and that they offended him and that they were separated. They were sorry that they got caught. But the sorrow that comes from God that leads to repentance produces something within the life. It looks like more than just sorrow and shame and embarrassment in a temporary reformation for the sake of clearing the reputation. It looks like something else. What does godly sorrow that leads to repentance look like? 
Well, Paul describes it in verse 11. He says, for behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought within you. The word carefulness literally means the speed of accomplishment. That is that it stirred up something in them wherein they quickly wanted to do something about the condition that they realized that they were in. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, in what clearing of yourselves. The word means literally a reasoned statement or a verbal defense. That immediately they wanted to be able to give an answer for the condition that they were in that, that, that was an evidence that they were cleared of it. Number three, he says, what indignation. The word indignation literally means passion, irritation, vexation, or wrath. That is that there was a passionate anger that they had, not that they got caught or that Paul called them out on their sin, but rather they were passionately angry that what Paul said was true. This is true, what you're saying, Paul, and I don't want it to be true. That sin is present in my life and in my church, and I don't want it in my life or in my church, and so I'm angry about the fact that it's there. He says, yea, what fear, the word fear means to fear, to dread, to have terror, or to have reverence. And that is the realization that if this sin still exists within my life, then that means the wages of that sin might also still be present there. And there's a fearfulness, a good fear, that exists within that life when it realizes that there's sin in the life that shouldn't be there. He says, yea, what vehement desire. That word means a passionate longing. The idea is to have it out. He says, yea, what zeal. Zeal means excitement of mind in pursuing the solution. And then he says, and yea, what revenge, or that is vengeance or punishment. That is that I not only want this out of my life in the strictest possible way and in the, in the loudest possible terms, but when this is out of my life, I want to go so far in the other direction that I punish this sin for ever having laid its mark upon my life in any way whatsoever. Now, let me ask you, church, when you think about repentance in the context of your own life, does it look like the description that the Apostle Paul gives to us here in verse 11. Do you remember what it was like when you first gave your life to Jesus Christ and you first realized that you were a sinner and that you were trapped in certain sins and you had a sincere desire because you now knew God that you wanted to be free from those sins and experience all of him that you could apart from what those sins were hindering? Do you remember what that was like? I do. I remember as a new believer going outside of my house, my mother's house who I lived with at that time and walking into the woods and screaming out at the top of my lungs, asking God for forgiveness and for deliverance for the sins of my life. I remember doing radical things to separate me from access to the things that would cause me to stumble or that would defile me breaking off relationships that I knew were toxic in my life, doing anything that I had to do in order to be free and separate. Now, I'm not saying this tonight so that you look and say, wow, he's so holy. I hope and pray that that's the testimony of every single one of us here that knows the fervency of that early repentance and that early walk with Christ. But let me ask you this. 
What about the sins that he's revealing in these days? With what kind of attitude or mindset do we have towards them? Do we have the same passion and desire to be free of the things that he's convicting us of today, though they be lesser maybe in our minds, or though maybe they be under the surface in a way that not everybody sees them, but do we have the same passion and zeal to be right with God and to hate sin? The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil and every wicked thing. Do we still possess that? Paul is rejoicing here because when the Corinthians heard the word of God that convicted them of the sins of their lives, they repented, and this is what their repentance looked like. Repentance looks like something. This is the description of what repentance is. He says, in all things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. The word approved literally just means proved. Paul says, I now stand in confidence that you guys are the real thing that your Christianity is as sincere as Christianity can get. And the thing that proves it to me is your repentance when you're faced with your iniquity. What is it that proves the reality of your faith and mine? A lot of things, but one of the biggest is the way that we repent of sin when we're put face to face with it. Are we willing to deal with the sins of our own heart? And if we're not, then we should question whether or not we're really in the faith. We may be professors. We may be reformed in our behavior, but we haven't been regenerated and we're not being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That can only come through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am sure that you guys are the real thing because you've cleared yourselves in this matter. Wherefore, verse 12, this is why, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered wrong, that is the person that had been sinned against, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Paul says the motive behind why I wrote was that you might know, at least in part, that I care about you enough to tell you the truth. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to speak the truth in love. And one of the evidences that we truly love someone is that we're willing to say the hard thing to them if we have to. And that goes for a church or it goes for a family member or it goes for a friend, a neighbor, or a spouse. That if we see something in someone's life that is a detriment to them, that is our responsibility in the meekness and in the gentleness and in the love of Christ to go to that person and say, hey, I recognize that there's something in your life that if you continue down that path, there is a very real destination and you're not going to like what it looks like when you get there. And I love you enough that though this is offensive and though it is so counterintuitive to the culture that we live in, I'm going to tell it to you. And Paul says that is part of the reason I wrote that you might know that I do actually care for you. He says, therefore, we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we speak all things to you in truth, even so our boasting, which I made before Titus, I boasted about you guys to Titus. It is found to be truth. You didn't make a fool out of me to my my co-laborer Titus. 
and his inward affection is more abundant toward you while he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Titus is impressed even here back now with me because he says, hey, you know, Paul, they really did respond. They responded in a way that we didn't expect. It didn't make sense for a society like Corinth and a people of that stature. But they did, Paul. They repented. They received. And it encourages me, Titus would say. And so Paul closes the chapter by saying, I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. And so the chapter essentially gives to us Paul's joy that he that was birthed out of discouragement because Titus came saying, hey, Paul, they appreciate you and they appreciate the letter that you wrote. And it was effective in their life. It impacted their repentance. So Paul says, I rejoice that you are proven to be legitimate saints. Now you would think Paul would stop there. Most of us would. Okay, they're good, we're good, everybody's happy, we've but he doesn't do that. He goes on now and he says, all right, well, since you guys have proven yourselves to be so faithful, I'm gonna give to you another test. From this time, going back to the travelings of Paul and Titus and they're moving around, Paul is still in Macedonia. And what he's going to do now that he's received word from Titus is he's going to write a second letter, this one, the one that we're reading right now, 2 Corinthians. And he's going to write it, and then he's going to send Titus back to Corinth with the letter. And so Paul writes this letter from this vantage point right here where he meets up with Titus and then sends him with it. And this is part two of the message. Notice what he says now that he crosses into chapter eight. He says, moreover, That means on top of everything that I've said to you thus far. He says, brethren, we do you to wit. That is, we call to your mind of the grace of God that was bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm about to tell you about a grace that God bestowed upon the churches up here, north of where you are right now. And here's that grace that I want to bring to your attention. He says how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. You say, could you please start using an NIV or an ESV or an NASB or anything other than that King James, which makes absolutely no sense to me. No, I cannot, but I can tell you what Paul is saying here, and you'll understand it. What Paul is saying is that the church in Philippi was under a great affliction. And the context of of this chapter tells us that that affliction is that there was poverty in their midst. They were starving for work. The economy was choked out, and the people, the Christians especially, were starving. And in fact, in those days, For a person to be a Christian automatically meant that you were going to experience that because Christians were so heavily persecuted against in Roman culture that once it was found out that you were a Christian, you would lose your job and you would become unhirable. That was a reality for many of the Christians. And in Philippi, especially in the church and in Macedonia, that would also be Thessalonica and Berea, this was a reality. They were facing poverty. Paul calls it a great trial of affliction. But he says, in spite,
spite of the fact that they were experiencing that affliction, they were experiencing also an abundance of joy. Now, it's only in Jesus Christ that those two things can be shared in the same sentence, isn't it? That you can be going through a trial of great affliction and yet at the same time be experiencing great joy. And Paul says that's the fact of the Christians here in Macedonia. Great trial, abundance of joy, so that their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Here's what he's saying. He's saying their joy eclipsed their trouble to the fact that they were givers. Their liberality, meaning that they were They were putting it upon Paul to receive an offering that he wasn't asking for. And where Paul's going with this is he's going to say, you want to see someone who's really a Christian? That's proof. When you see a group of Christians that are willing to give when they haven't been asked, when they don't have two nickels to rub together, that is a sincere proof that something is going on within that person's life. So he goes on to say, to their credit, verse 3, for to their power, I bear record, yea, beyond their power or their ability, they were willing of themselves, I didn't ask for it, praying us or begging us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Part of what the Apostle Paul would do as he would travel from church to church is that whatever collection was designated for the ministering to the saints, he would bring to the poor churches back in the region of Judea. And we won't get into the reason why there were poor churches back in Judea, which is basically Jerusalem where the church began. But Paul would collect from the churches around Asia Minor and then in Europe, and he would bring that money back to them to relieve them uh, in their affliction in there. And so Paul is saying that they pressed us that we would receive the gift and that we would take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now let me pause right here and just say this. It is a real evidence of the work of the Lord in someone's life when they're willing to give, not just necessarily of their time or their talents or their ability, but when a, a, a Christian is willing to give financially to the things of God. In many ways, the money that you and I earn is the tangible substance that is our life. We spend our time, our life, to earn money. And so we're essentially taking now our life and we're turning it into something tangible. That's money. And what we then do with that money is what we're doing then with our life. And so every one of us, we have... A, 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 a set of um, responsibilities and things that we have to do. We have to pay for our living expenses. We have to pay for our food. We have to pay for our clothing. We have to provide for our kids or our families or whatever it is that our responsibilities are. And all those things are, are a given. Every one of us has those things to some degree. But then on top of that, whatever's left over, what we would call our disposable income, that becomes for you and I a great measurement as to what we give our lives to. What do we give the disposable part of our earned money to? That's a great way to measure what's important in our lives. And Paul is saying these churches in Macedonia can't even meet their monthly expenses. And yet they're going over and beyond to give what they can to the things of God because of the joy that they have that comes only from him. 
And I'll leave it right there for that to search our hearts, every one of us. And what do we do with our money? Where are our affections in that? And so Paul goes on now and he says in verse five, he says, and this they did, not as we had hoped, but first they gave their own selves to the Lord and then unto us by the will of God. By the way, that's the answer as to how this becomes a reality. You want to know how to become a giver to the things of God? First of all, give yourself. It's in the laying down of self that we find the grace to give away anything else that God might ask from us. God asks things of us, doesn't he? It's been a real um, uh, message in my heart lately. I'm, I'm um, in communication with some, some um, Christian brothers in other parts of the country that are going through different things. And, uh, you know, we're praying through some certain things together and they're asking, you know, um, how they should navigate through and, and, and all the rest. And, and the reoccurring theme as we pray and, and talk about different things is that sometimes the things that God asks of us are not necessarily um, taking into account whether or not we're happy about it. <laughs> I don't know if he does that for you when he asks something of you. If he asks you first, well, would you be happy if I asked this of you? A lot of times we're not happy about it. It's only in responding in obedience that the joy comes as we realize that his plan is greater than ours and his vision supersedes ours. But anyways, they gave themselves to the Lord and then unto us by the will of God. Insomuch, Paul says, that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you this same grace also. So here's what Paul's saying. Titus is coming. He's carrying this letter, the very one that we're reading right now, and he's also carrying in his other hand an offering basket. And he's going to take a collection there. And Paul's saying, put up. That's exactly what Paul, you can't paint it any other way. He's telling them that they should give to the work of the Lord. Now, part of me pauses here. And I, and I know the heart of Paul, studied Paul. I know the heart of God, studied God. Why in the world is Paul the apostle asking for money from the church in Corinth? So he gives reason. Here's why. Here's why God asks his people to be financial givers. Eight reasons. And don't worry. I know when I said that word eight, it was like the whole study just went slow motion, echo, eight, eight, eight. Reason, reason. No. Don't worry. We move through them quickly. Reason number one, he gives to us in verse eight, seven. Notice what he says. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. Paul says, listen, understand this, and, and take it to yourself. You know, we can lay it upon the Corinthians, but it's for us as much as it is for them. Paul is saying, as much as we enjoy the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, as much as we enjoy faith and we enjoy all of the other aspects of this Christian life and of being disciples of Jesus Christ, he's saying that giving is just as much a discipline for the Christian as any other thing that we would participate in as Christians. Even as you abound in all of those other things, see that you abound in this grace also. It's part of the faith. Giving is a part of our following Christ. Number two, he tells us in verse eight, he says, I speak not by commandment, that is, God's not forcing this upon me or upon you, but rather by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Paul says, the second reason that I'm asking this of you 
is because the people here in Macedonia are showing themselves so willing to give that it's stirring in me almost a, a, a comparison between you and them and saying that if these people are this willing in their poverty, then won't you be willing in your abundance? Because Corinth was an affluent city. And he says, and I want to prove the sincerity of your love in it. So the second reason he's asking is just because the churches in Macedonia have emboldened me to ask. The third reason in verse nine, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. The third reason why, why the Christian is to give is because it's Christ-like. That this is exactly what Jesus did. And the Bible says that as he did, so we're also to follow in his footsteps. He laid aside his riches for the sake of others, and he calls us at times to do the same. The fourth reason is given in verses 10 through 12. He says, and herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you. That means absolutely necessary, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now, therefore, perform the doing of it. In other words, Paul said, listen, when I was there, you said you'd actively give. A year ago, you sent a message saying that you would actively give. Now, Paul says, put your money where your mouth is. He's saying, do perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be also a performance also out of that which you have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what a man has and not according to what he has not. Paul is saying this. He's saying, listen, if you're willing to give it and you said you would and you have it, then you should give it. If you don't have it, then take the pressure off. But if you do and you said you would, then do it. Then the fifth reason in verses 13 through 15, he says, for I mean not that other men be eased and that you be burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their need, that their abundance also may be a supply for your need, that there may be an equality. Hey, right now, you guys are prospering, so give to those that need. And the time will come that you're languishing and another group that's prospering will take care of you. <clears throat> As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Paul says that as much as is possible in the body of Christ, we should be doing what we can to provide for those that have less than we do. The sixth reason is given in verses 16 all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 24. Notice what he says. He says, but thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. Titus has given up his life for your sake. He's traveling all the way back down a couple of hundred miles. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation or the, the call to go. But being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, probably meaning that Timothy would accompany Titus. And not that only, but who also was chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, 
that no man should blame us in the abundance which is administered by us. It's a large sum of money that we'll be carrying with us by the time that we get there. And we want to provide for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And so we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Paul says the sixth reason why you should give is because our accountability and our track record has been faithful. That, that if you examine our ministry and where we've been and where we've gone, there has been no scandal. There has never been a place where there's been misgivings. You can look at our lives and see that we're not living opulently, getting high, high life off of the, the, the offerings of God's people, that we have been incredulously faithful with every cent that God has entrusted into our care, that it will get where it's designated to go. You have my signature and all of those that have, have, have come to you have the same proof within them that you can rest in confidence that your money uh, and your gift is being faithfully handled. And then the seventh reason is given in the first five verses of chapter nine. And this is a little bit of, um, oh, I don't know. I don't, this is almost like thermometer stuff uh, that you see in churches a little bit. Paul says in verse one, chapter nine, he says, for as touching the ministering to the saints, again, giving, same, same concept, different phrase. He says, it is superfluous or silly or foolish for me to write unto you. For I know the forwardness or the willingness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has provoked very many. Yet, have I sent the brethren to you, that is, I'm sending Titus and Timothy and the company to collect, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, you may be ready. Lest, haply, that is, it might happen, if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should not be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof you had noticed before, I told you beforehand, that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. Here's what Paul's saying in this thing. He's saying, listen, these churches in Macedonia that are giving out of poverty are giving to a point where if we come to you and the offering there is smaller than the offering here, then it will be an embarrassment and a shame to you. The day is going to come when your giving will be revealed. And that's true for every one of us, isn't it? What did Jesus say? He says, when you give your alms, do not give so that everybody can see your boasting, your ringing bells and putting it in loudly. He's saying, God that sees in secret will reward you openly. You say, Pastor, this Bible study just turned south in the past chapter and a half. How did we get from encouraging Paul and repentance 
to this, all of this about giving. Here's, here's why. Understand this as we land the plane. Giving is not for God. Do you understand that? Let me say this. Let me go on record right here, right now. God does not need your money. Did you hear that? God does not want your money. Be clear on that point. Our giving is not for his sake. He is not worried about how he's going to pay the rent or about how he's going to provide for poor saints or how he's going to get things done in his kingdom. He's not concerned one iota of it. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 8, the psalmist, God speaking through the psalmist, says this. God says, I will not reprove you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Do you hear the message? God isn't interested in your money. He doesn't need it. This church is not interested in your money. This church doesn't need your money. Do you understand? Do we understand all of that? You say, then what is the purpose of all of this? Why does God ask us to give? It's not for him, it's for you. Notice in verse 6 of chapter 9. He says, but this I say, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, therefore, According as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. One of the things that God has ordained as a law within his kingdom and within this universe is the law of giving as sowing and reaping. He says that when we give, there is something sowed that ultimately will be reaped upon and a bountiful sowing will result in a bountiful reaping. But it's not to be done because you're constrained to, because you feel like you have to. It's to be done when you want to and it's to be done cheerfully. And notice what it says. What will we reap? What do we reap when we sow financially? Notice in verse eight. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness remains forever. Now, he that ministers seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of of your righteousness. Notice the three things there that the Apostle Paul says that we will reap if we sow bountifully. Number one is that our, our food, that is our daily needs, the things that we have need of right now, we're going to reap that. 
Second of all, the second thing that we're going to reap is seed. He says that secondly in verse 10. You know what seed is? That's your investment. The seed is what you put into the ground to get more back. So not only is God going to provide for the things that you need, he's going to provide enough that you're able to invest more to get more back. And then thirdly, you're going to reap also an increase in the fruits of your righteousness. So you're going to abound in more. And notice in verse 11, he says, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causes through us thanksgiving to God. When we see God coming through on what he said he would do, it blesses us. For the administration of this service not only supplies the lack of the saints or the need of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. While by the experiment of this ministry, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Therefore, what Paul is saying here is that the grace of giving that was bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia and that he is calling now the church in Corinth to participate in is all about their benefit and very little about God's need or about God getting things where they need to go. We are the ones that are benefited when we by faith accept God's call to participate in the grace of giving. But understand, it is never to be done grudgingly. It is never to be done by constraint or under some law that you have to, but willingly and cheerfully. And when the joy that Christ has brought into our hearts through the freedom that we have compels us to give of what we have when we can, and even over and beyond it, we experience the greater joy in giving. What did Jesus say? He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it's only the person that has done that that can know that. And notice how he closes out the chapter. He says in verse 15, he says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Doesn't that just put everything into perspective? I mean, you think, well, what is God asking of me? Well, what did God give to you? What did he give to us? He gave us the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate perspective. Let me ask you this right now, Christian. I want to talk to the Christians for just a minute. And the worship team can come. What would you have right now, Christian, if Christ didn't come into your life? What would you have? Where would you be? Sometimes I'm drawn face to face with this by way of reminder when the Lord just reminds me what he saved me from. Three months before I gave my life to Christ, I fell off uh, the roof at the college that I was attending at that time. I won't tell you why I was up there, but I was not doing godly, Christ-like things at that art school where art people do things that artists do. Not that I'm an artist. God only knows why I was there. I was there to get saved. But on the night before finals, the last semester that I was there, it started to rain while we were up there. And upon descending from the roof, the, 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 the sheet metal panels became a giant water slide. And I slid down probably 40 feet, hit the flat gravel, skimmed right across it, and then shot off the edge of the roof like a catapult 
fell not only down, the, it was only a single story at that point, but then down into a stairwell that descended even further, four or five steps down, and landed on the concrete ground. Right here was the point of impact. That's, that's what landed. This eyebrow hit the ground first, and it smashed my skull. Broke every bone in, in the, this quarter of my face right here. Uh, immediate you know, flow of, not to be gross, but blood. Uh, I, I, my, my memory is standing up saying, I'm okay. And then touching, seeing blood, and the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital. Uh, I think a quick flash in the ambulance and then not again until being in the hospital um, and in and out of a coma for a week. Uh, just crazy things happened. Um, disaster of, of an accident that happened that day. But I remember the doctors came in um, to my room at the end of a week when they were discharging me. And they said, you should be dead right now. You should be very grateful that you're alive. And I didn't walk away from that thinking like, thank you God for saving my life. I walked out of there thinking, wow, I'm really strong. <laughs> but I didn't give my life to Christ until three months after that accident. And if I had died that day, I would have gone into a Christless eternity forever. I did not know Jesus and I was not neutral. I was hostile against Christ at that time. And he saved my life and he spared me from it. And not only did I almost die that day, but I was probably the most mentally and emotionally unstable person that you could ever know. My life was a train wreck waiting to happen. I was in a tailspin. And if I were to try to communicate to you today where I would be if Jesus Christ had not come into my life, I don't know how to describe it. But I don't think mental institution or heavily medicated or, you know, certain gestures, I don't think they would do justice to what I would be today if it wasn't for Christ writing my name in his book of life and hearing my prayer and coming into my life and saving me. And not only am I not all of those things that I would be, but he has made me what I could never have made myself in a thousand ways. And that is true for every single one of us here. And for us to resist anything that God would ask of us, moving now way beyond the context of dollars and cents, which is the smallest of all that God would ever ask of us, what is he not worthy of if he should put his finger upon any area of our lives and say, this is what I made you for? And I would ask you to lay it upon the altar of living sacrifice. He is ultimately worthy and deserving of everything that we are. They first gave themselves unto the Lord and then also to us. Does Jesus possess all of your life tonight? Paul closes this section of scripture, which I'm so thankful that we got through, though it's a little bit late. He closes the section by bringing the perspective. He gave all for us. And it's our reasonable service to give all of us to him, whatever he would ask. Father, we thank you tonight as we come to the close of this passage. Awkward to talk about. And in our culture, Lord, a concept that's been so greatly abused. And so many preachers, so-called, have used these verses to rob saints and steal from people to enrich themselves. We thank you, God, that tonight your heart in speaking these things to us is not to enrich yourself or a man, but to enrich your children. And so, Father, may you take these concepts and truths that we've heard and would you apply them to our own lives individually and that we would come behind in nothing 
So teach us, Lord, that we would be your disciples. And remind us, oh God, what you've done for us. And may we fall in love with you afresh, Jesus, as we consider your unspeakable gift. Thank you for this time tonight. Bless each one of us, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's all stand.